Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Um, if you don't have a Bible, listen real close. If you need a Bible, let us know. We'd love to give you one as a gift. Um, we do have the, the passage on screen again this morning because I want us to read it together. Um, and I did try to make the, uh, the size of the type a little larger uh, so that it was a little more legible. Um, but let's lift our voices and keep it open on your lap as well, on your tablet, on your phone, because we will reference it throughout our time together this morning. Lift your voices together with me. Will you with me with resounding effect? And let's declare the word of the Lord. This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of King Jesus, to all God's holy ones in King Jesus who are in Philippi, together with the overseers and ministers. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and King Jesus the Lord. I thank my God every time I think of you. I always pray with joy whenever I pray for you all because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Of this, I'm convinced. The one who began a good work in you will thoroughly complete it by the day of King Jesus. It's right for me to think this way about all of you. You have me in your hearts, here in prison as I am, working to defend and bolster up the gospel. You are my partners in grace, all of you. Yes, God can bear witness how much I'm longing for all of you with the deep love of King Jesus. And this is what I'm praying, that your love may overflow still more and more in knowledge and in all astute wisdom. Then you will be able to tell the difference between good and evil and be sincere and faultless on the day of Messiah, filled to overflowing with the fruit of right living, fruit that comes through King Jesus to God's glory and praise. Amen. I want to just um, make a bit of a disclaimer as we continue. We're, we're looking at, we're, we're, this is our third week into this new series now, um, Going Public. And we're studying the letter of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians, and how uh, that instructs us to be the people of Christ and live in such a way uh, before the watching world that we, we demonstrate what the kingdom of God looks like, what Christ Jesus looks like to the watching world. And so if you've missed the first couple of weeks, I, I encourage you to try to get a hold of, I believe these messages are being uploaded to our website, and uh, you can get a hold of them uh, in that way. Uh, talk to Sue Chatterton, our, our receptionist and secretary. She's over to my right and your left here. And uh, be sure to get a hold of them because there are, there are crucial pieces that I don't want to reiterate again this morning. But let me just say this, because before we, we dive in here, I, I just want to make something clear. I want to say that I've received of late uh, 
comments of the, the effect that the nature of some of our sermons lately have been somewhat heady and requiring a university-level scholarly intellect to try to grasp or comprehend. Now, I've, over the years, you get all kinds of comments, and you don't make much of most of them. And the first couple of times I heard this comment, I really didn't uh, make much of it, and I've only heard it really a handful of times. But after uh, the remark was made a couple of more times, I felt that it merited a response uh, that was more than just individual to each person making this remark. Beloved, there's no question that these matters that we've been considering of late in Philippians now, and we recently completed a series on the Eucharist, there's no question that these matters have great depth to them. Yeah? How many have felt that? I feel that. The gravity of them as we, as we not only as I bring them to you on Sunday mornings, but even in my own preparation of them. They are great and deep matters. They just are. And there has been no intellectual pursuit here to make them that way. They just are that way. Most of Paul's writings, and that's where we've been a lot lately with Philippians now, but also in our study of the Eucharist and in the Gospel of John, we spent some time there. And these are deep matters that we are considering. They just are. There's no attempt to make them that way or somehow make them cerebral and incomprehensible. They just are that in a certain sense. And I get that, and I feel that, and I understand that. But the point that I'm trying to make with this disclaimer is this. These matters, and please hear this, because this is an important point of clarity for us. These matters are not deep in the sense of requiring scholarly acumen or some kind of special intellectual ability to, to be able to grasp and comprehend them. They're not deep in that way, really. Rather, they're deep essentially because of the immensity of them and the mystery of them and the majesty of the goodness and greatness of God. The magnitude of God's nature. How many know whenever we consider the nature of God, we are, are going to be left in awe. We are going to be left with an incredible sense of, of being out of our depth. <laughs> Not being able to comprehend Him and these things and the divine. And sadly in the church... I have found over the years, not only in my own 30-plus years of pastoral ministry, but growing up in the church, sadly, many of us have been taught a doctrine of God 
that is magical and superficial and without any substance or significance. In fact, it's superstitious some of the time, simplistic, moralistic, and legalistic. And Advent, for, for instance, here we are in Advent, Advent certainly challenges and pushes back against that kind of understanding of God and that kind of, if you will, spoon-fed spirituality. Advent calls us saying this. We need to be drawn down deeply into the richness of the wonder and the mystery and the majesty of God and the incarnation. God became human. And this sense of depth that we feel when we begin to grapple with these these, these, these matters of God, we need to, in grappling, lean into the Holy Spirit who, as St. Paul says, reveals these things and shows us the depths of God. And, of course, this requires a willingness on our part. Yeah? A willingness to diligence and vigilance of cooperation on our part. We have to be willing. If, if, if your discipleship, if your uh, idea of following Jesus and learning how to follow Jesus is, is, is one that is something where, where you and I are being spoon-fed all the time, nice devotional little light thoughts about what it means to walk with Jesus. We're going we're gonna to fall short of where we should be in Him. We're going to be like those that Paul spoke to and, and in, in Corinth and said, you're still drinking milk and you should be eating meat right now. And so, God calls us to these things, but it requires an engagement. He's not going to force feed us. He's not going to spoon feed us. It requires an engagement on our part. And that means a little bit of work for us, right? And none of us like that. We don't like homework. Every time we hear the word homework, we groan. It, it, it's going to require of us the, the willingness to sit with these things and to contemplate these things and to prayerfully ask the Holy Spirit to come and open and unveil these things to us. And so that's where I believe He's calling us. And I think it's important that we understand that as we consider these matters that, that they are in no way an effort to try to intellectualize us. God, God forbid. But at the same time, God has given us our minds and our hearts so that we would engage with Him and His Word in these things, even in these deep matters that seem to just be 
confounding us and bamboozling us. And when we do, as Paul said, the love, my prayer is that the love of God, the fullness, the full-blown dimensions of that, the incomprehensibility of it will overflow in you and through you and to the world. So, I just make that disclaimer, and I hope it helps bring some clarity and understanding as to the heart of where I'm coming from and where I believe God is calling us to stretch with Him. Turn to somebody and say, stay on the stretch with God. Just go ahead and yell it across the aisle if you need to. Stay on the stretch with God. How many know He always has us on the stretch with Him? With him. Those aren't my words. I think originally those were the words of E.M. Bounds. If you know who E.M. Bounds is, he, he is in glory now, long since passed, but he wrote a powerful series on prayer. And he, he said, God always seeks to have us on the stretch with him. And so we're being stretched, and it's uncomfortable. And it's painful at times, and it's disturbing, and we don't like it because we like to, uh, to be comfortable and at ease, and, but He keeps us on the stretch with Him. So let's stay on the stretch with Him. How many think that's a good idea? Yeah? Philippians 1. We're looking this morning now at Paul's prayer. We've been looking at what prayer in the kingdom, in God's new world looks like. But we take another step this morning and what living in God's world new looks like. Prayer and living in God's new world. And we get uh, ideas of what it looks like as we look at Paul's prayer, which is in this first chapter of Philippians. Verses 3-11 to these nine verses move through a sequence of thought and prayer. Paul's prayers were very thoughtful. I think that's partly due to the fact that he, he wrote them. He had to write them out because that was how he was communicating. I encourage you to write your prayers. Writing them forces us to really contemplate and be a little more thoughtful in our words and how we craft our prayer to the Lord. But there's a sequence of thought and prayer here in Paul's prayer. It's a prayer of thanksgiving for the koinonia, the, the, the fellowship is the word we give it, although that word fellowship isn't strong enough. But he's thankful for that and for what he shares of that with the Philippian church. In verses 3 to 8, he expresses that. And then there is, with this prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer of intercession. That their own love and faith will grow more and more. And, and that's my intercession for us. That our own love and faith will grow more and more, but realizing, as I just said a moment ago in introducing this message, that's going to require something of us. 
we're, we're not going to just come and sit like this and have God's big divine spoon from heaven give us pablum like babies being fed. It's going to require something of us. How many know when you have lunch today, it's going to require something of you to actually eat that meal? Hello? You're not going to be able to just pull up to the table and sit there and the food is not going to suddenly jump off the plate into your mouth and somehow automatically you're going to start chewing. No, you're going to, you're, that's required of you. If you don't take action and ex exercise diligence with the fork, the spoon, the chopsticks, whatever you're using, it's, it's not going to happen. You'll be, you'll be sitting there till next Sunday sending me a message. Pastor, sorry I couldn't come. I've been waiting for my lunch to eat it, and it just doesn't seem to want to lift off the plate and into my mouth. No, and it's the same as we grow in the things of God. It requires something of us, an exercising of the mind and the heart and the spirit, the whole person. And so Paul intercedes for this, that they would grow and that there would be an advancement of the gospel as a result. So verse 3 assures the Philippians of Paul's constant prayer. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. In verse 4, always in every prayer of mine for you, all, make, all the making of my prayer. He's, he's constantly praying for them. And, and we concluded last week, I said, do you think about that for a moment? And I say it again now. Think about that. Constant prayer. Would you say that with me? Constant prayer. Now for Paul and his Jewish background, it was likely that he continued his lifelong habit of at least three set prayer times a day. And if you frame the day that way, which, by the way, isn't a bad way to frame your day, prayer in the morning, prayer at noon, prayer in the evening, it, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful way to frame the day, and there are other ways that you can frame it. Some frame it with more prayer times than that. As you're going through your day, it, it's probable as you frame your day, as he framed it, that the concerns that you mention each time will recur to your mind at other times as well. And Paul assumes what most of us have to work hard to attain, it seems, in our lives. He assumes a life in which the presence of God deliberately evoked and invoked at certain times becomes a conscious reality for the rest of the time. In that consciousness for Paul, the church in Philippi is never far away. So he's constantly praying. What a model that is for us to constantly be praying even as we go throughout our day and even taking as we can timeouts throughout the day to just stop 
and take a moment and acknowledge the presence of God, consciously acknowledging His presence and His presence becoming conscious to us in doing so. And then verse 4, he goes on, he prays for them all, not just for the leaders or those with special needs or responsibilities. His letter stresses the unity of the church. So the, that repeated all that he uses indicates that Paul wants to emphasize that nobody is left out. He knows them all, and he loves them all. Paul has a special affection for this church that he founded in Philippi. And his prayer is with joy. With joy. The first mention of this major Philippians theme. Some have said that that is really the primary theme of Philippians, joy. And it is a dominant theme. I would not say it's the primary theme, but it is a dominant theme. The primary theme is the theme that we are considering even in this series. How to live as the people of Christ in a way that advances the gospel. Living out loud the gospel of the kingdom. How we are to live before a watching world. And drawing from the church in Philippi and Paul's instructions to them as to how to do that. Joy was one of the aspirations of the various philosophies that existed in Paul's day. Common philosophies that were in Paul's day. Joy was a popular aspiration. But Paul's reason for joy was quite different to that of the mainstream philosophies. The Stoics, for instance. For them... Joy was to be attained by rising above the pains and puzzles of ordinary life. That's how you attain joy. However, for Paul, watch this. That wasn't the way of joy for Paul, to rise above the pains and puzzles of ordinary life. For Paul, the way to joy is the way of the cross. The cruciformed way. It's not in pretending that bad things don't happen or that they don't really matter. To the contrary, knowing that they do matter, but that King Jesus has overcome through them and launched His new world, bringing the joy of new creation into being. So, joy was not linked for Paul to personal comfort, but to the progress of the gospel of the kingdom. That is what brought Paul joy. And that joy of the Lord strengthened him. Now, this, this doesn't this go completely against the grain of what we would wish of joy? Our, our joy, really, if we're honest, is much more like the Stoics. If, if we can somehow rise above the pains and puzzles of ordinary life, then we can be joyful. Paul says, no, as a Christ follower, the way to joy is the way of the cross. Laying our lives down. 
putting the good of others before ourselves. And of course, he points to Christ as he will more explicitly as we move into chapter 2 and how Christ overcame not, not by, by, by somehow sidestepping these things or, or denying them, but he overcame through them. And Paul is particularly grateful for their koinonia. There's that word again in the gospel. Their fellowship. But it, it's really more than, than what we would understand fellowship to be. You know, covered dish dinners and coffee and tea. And, and you know, after the service, we'll have some fellowship together. It's, 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 it's more than just two fellows in a ship. It's more than that. It's, it, it, that word really doesn't bring it out. Paul's, what really Paul is getting at here is that there's a partnership that they have. There's a deep commitment that they have to one another. He prays with joy for them in verse 4. And he celebrates their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, he says in verse 5. Partnership. Say that with me, will you? Partnership. We refer to church membership here in our congregation as ministry partnership. Because membership, that word membership has been so maligned and, and you know, we think of membership and we think of the country club. We think of membership and we think of the golf club. We think of membership and we think of Costco. And we, that's what we associate all these things with membership, and that, that bleeds into how we look at the church, too. And membership in the church, in this congregation, really has nothing to do with that. It speaks more of this, a partnership in the gospel. We share a partnership in the gospel of the kingdom. And Paul and the Philippians have enjoyed a particularly close bond since he first preached the gospel in Philippi, probably about 12 years earlier from this point that he's writing to them now. In Acts 16, we can read about it. The Philippian church, watch this, the Philippian church shares in carrying the gospel mission with him. They did not understand this as something that Paul did and they were just spectators of. They clearly understood that this was a partnership. Beloved, being the church is partnership. It's not just about one individual at the front of the room that does the ministry it's a partnership in ministry of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom together. This is what Paul is celebrating with the Philippians. This is what he's praying with joy about. His partnership in the gospel with them. And this partnership, they understood it well. They, they, they have staked their public honor on and offered their finances toward this partnership with Paul and his ministry. They even preached the message 
themselves in Philippi. Verses 27 and 28 of chapter 1 show us that. They pray for Paul, likely during their weekly meetings, which would be open for anyone and audible from the street even. As the saying goes, they put their money where their mouth was. Paul sees their unflagging enthusiasm for the gospel and his own ministry is evidence of God's grace in much the same way as he senses God's grace uplifting him while in prison. And he's confident that their friendship will continue because of Verse 6. Look at verse 6. The one who began a good work in you will thoroughly complete it by the day of King Jesus. Now, some of us have memorized that verse. It's become a favorite, perhaps. But we need to understand the full impact of this verse within its context here in Philippians. Paul says, I'm confident that our partnership, our friendship will continue because the one who began a good work in you will thoroughly complete it by the day of King Jesus. And when Paul says, in you, the work he began in you, it could also be perhaps better translated, among you. And the good work might better refer to their corporate health. This was not just an individual thing. The work that God began in you individually. It has that application to it, but Paul is also thinking of the work of God among them and through them collectively as a community. Now today I know we like to be vigilant, rather, especially in our day and age of the modern church. We like to be vigilant as Canadians, and diligent about smuggling into the New Testament this Western world individualistic focus. Because we so value our individualism. But Paul is thinking, yes, of the individuals. He knows each of the individuals. He knows them all. But he's thinking of the community the faith community, the kingdom community that they are, the work that God has begun in you individually, but also, and perhaps more so in Paul's mind, collectively among you. So a good work that looks to the future day of the Lord is certainly an individual work within each of us but it is a corporate, collective, community work of God's grace among us as well. Yeah? Turn to somebody and say, in you and among us. Go ahead, tell them that, will you? In you and among us. Paul knows without hesitation that God will complete and fulfill His purpose because He raised Jesus from the dead 
and thus broke the chains of sin and death that bind all humans. Christ's resurrection proves sin's ultimate defeat. And God has established each believing Christ follower as a new creation. And as a community, we are a new creation community. Now please notice that Paul does not say that the Philippians have some time to complete or accomplish their salvation and fulfill this new way of being human. Notice that. He doesn't say that they have some time to complete it and accomplish it the way a teacher might say to a class that they have one hour to complete the exam. Rather, notice that Paul stresses that it is God who brought them into fellowship with Himself through Christ. I am confident that the One who began this work, He began it. Not you, not me, not Paul. The One who began this work. God is always at work in the world. Hello? He's always at work in our lives. Long before we even come in onto the scene. Long before we even clue into it. Long before we even tune in to what's going on. God has been working. I know we like to think, don't fear. I'm here now. I will fix this. Stay calm. Dave is here. We like to think that way, don't we? No, 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 no. God has been here long before I arrived. He's been working long before I came into the scene. Long before you and I come in onto whatever it is. God's work in the church, God's work around the world, God's work on the mission field. We don't arrive and suddenly God's great answer is here now. Have no fear. God has already been at work. He simply calls us to awaken and partner with Him in what He's already at work doing. And Paul says, I'm confident that the one who began, and that one was not you or me, the one, God began the work. He doesn't say, now, you got to get busy, you've you got to accomplish this, and you've only got an hour to do it, so you better get going. No, he, he stresses to them the one, the God who brought them into this great fellowship of faith through Christ. And because He has established them, he will also maintain them until the end and build them and grow them until the end. Now that's not to say we, we have no part in it. As I said a moment ago, this is a partnership and we are to be responsive. Their continued participation with Paul in ministry serves as evidence of this of the steadfast loving kindness and mercy of the Lord and the partnership 
that the Lord longs to share with all of us. These Christ followers in Philippi will fully realize what they were already called and created to become, Paul is saying. And do you know what that was? He calls them this saints. God's holy people. And you and I are called to the same. To become saints. To be saints. God calls us saints. I've had you do this numerous times over the years. Turn to somebody and just refer to them again, will you? Good morning, Saint Victoria. Good morning, Saint Kevin. Good morning, Saint Yun. Now, we kind of chuckle and feel funny doing that, but you know what? God takes this seriously. He calls us saints. And Paul says, I'm confident that 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 work which God Himself has begun, He will bring it to completion as long as we continue to participate and cooperate with Him. I like what Leon Bloy wrote. He wrote these words. He said, the only real sadness, the only real failure, the only great tragedy in life is not to become a saint. I want to become a saint, loved ones. I want us to be and become the saints that we are called and created to be. Every one of us. Paul declares that God will finish molding and shaping us into Christ's likeness. That's what a saint is. Someone who is being molded and shaped into Christ's likeness so that he will be fit for the coming. She will be fit for the coming of Christ Jesus. Romans 8.29 And in Christ, we are, of course, heirs of God with all the saints. Even the saints that have gone before us. The saints that we venerate. We are heirs together. We have an inheritance. Hello? I'm not talking about what your Uncle, Uncle, Uncle Bob has. That may be a great inheritance too. I'm talking about the inheritance we have in Christ. Now, this is often subject to misunderstanding for us, for many in the church. Since the second century, many within the church have venerated certain especially courageous, sacrificial, and insightful Christ followers as saints. Large segments of the church believe that we should pray to the departed spirits of these people so that they might, through their extraordinary piety, secure the favor of God on their behalf. And so, all this means that when some of us read the word saints 
when, when we sit here and we hear things like what we're hearing this morning in Paul's letters, we imagine, it, it's almost like we just automatically do this without even thinking. We imagine that he is addressing people of exemplary piety. He's not really talking to me. He's talking to those ones that are, you know, just outstanding. But for Paul, saints are those called by God to be his own people made holy, sanctified by means of Christ Jesus. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. That's how he put it there. And so that applies to all of us. We are all called by God to be His own holy people. Israel is a picture of that for us. God called them and set them apart as His chosen people. We are the new chosen people of God with Israel. Of course, Israel has a very unique place in that, yes. And I'm not diminishing that at all. But what I'm saying is Israel serves to prophetically point to us who we are all called to be in Christ Jesus. Made holy by means of Christ Jesus. Moreover, for Paul, it goes beyond just being given a new status. Being made holy by Christ's holy status, being given to the Christ follower, means that there are also ethical connotations that the terms holy and saints carry, which cannot be ignored. So to be a saint, then, is to be set apart as a Christ follower, and, and, and sometimes saints live or behave in ways that are displeasing to God. Yeah? Even this, the, the saints of church history that we venerate weren't perfect. I know we put them on a pedestal. And, 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 and we, we, we look at them in ways that we think they were not human, but they were people just like you and me. And so they lived in ways that were displeasing to God. Every Christ follower is a saint as a result of experiencing God's gracious work of redemption and sanctification, not as a result of some prior act of courage or sacrifice or theological brilliance. That's not why they're saints. That's not why we're saints. Paul's purpose in describing the Philippians and us as saints and sanctified is in part to urge them, to urge us to live in a way consistent with this status. Paul is saying, you are saints in Christ Jesus. So give yourself to live that way. Live towards who you are and are called to be. He believes that the initiative in sanctification, and, and I know that, that's, that's a big word. What does that mean? It, sanctification is essentially the process of becoming 
more and more Christ-like, more and more obedient to God's will after being set apart by the redeeming work of Christ. And that is a work that is going on now in each and every one of us, and it will continue to go on until we see Him face to face. And all saints were in that process. And so Paul believes that this initiative lies with God. God initiated this. He began this work. And what he initiated, Paul said, he will complete. What God initiates, he will complete. It lies with Him to do this. But Paul also is saying that Christ followers should also live in a way that cooperates with Christ and that is fitting for the saints. So there there are ethical connotations here that he's talking about. You are saints. Christ has made you saints. God has initiated this. He will complete it. But there is a call. There's a calling in this as well to you and me. We we have been declared saints, but we are also called to be saints. And that means we are to live in keeping with what a saint in Christ Jesus is to look like. And that is to be reflected in our attitudes, in our mindsets, in our outlook to the world, in the way we deal with things like pandemics, in the ethics in which we conduct ourselves. Do we wear a mask? Do we not wear a mask? Do we consider others before ourselves? All of this comes into play, Paul is saying, when we live to be the saints we are called to be. It's not God's production company where He just, bam, stamps out saints. And presto, here we are. Hallelujah. No, it is a relationship and a partnership and a walk and a journey with Him. We are becoming saints in Christ Jesus. We are saints in Christ Jesus. We live in a way that cooperates with Christ Jesus and is fitting for the saints. Holy people are certainly unholy people when they are called by God. And true saints are very conscious of their unholiness. In fact, if you study the saints of church history, you will quickly discover that about them. They had they had a a very strong and sensitive consciousness of the fact that they were unholy people before a holy God. They were well aware of their sinfulness. A saint is not someone that is beyond sinfulness. A saint is someone who fully realizes how sinful they are and how merciful God has been towards them in His loving kindness and grace, and so they live in that way of His loving kindness and grace. So Paul urges those who have been set apart by God like this into this sainthood 
to meet and to match God's initiative action for them with being given, being a people given to the passion of pursuit in living lives of sanctified sainthood. May we be a people given to God in that way. I pray. May I, may we be a people given to God in that way. I want to underscore this gospel partnership is reflected in very tangible terms. This partnership with Paul for the Philippians was not simply because they share his beliefs and they have the same ideas and convictions that Paul had. It was a costly expression of their commitment to the gospel. Paul refers directly to their financial gift that they have contributed out of their poverty, in fact, and their personal sacrifice. Paul acknowledges their costly collaboration with him in the gospel. Koinonia. Koinonia, among other things, is interestingly a business term. Particularly when the extended family works together. And that is how Paul sees his partnership and fellowship with the Philippians. Watch this. Follow this metaphor of Paul's with me. And let it give us a new perspective on God's kingdom and on who we are as the church. Paul sees the Philippians as part of the Messiah's family. And they are behaving as a working together family should in the family business. So he thanks God for them in relation to the money they have sent and their partnership of which the money was a concrete sign. Loved ones, we are part of the family of God in Christ Jesus. And the family business for us is the gospel of the kingdom. And living that out loud in our lives, our ordinary lives, and through exceptional experiences like pandemics and other occurrences that take place, that the fact that we are saints in Christ Jesus is to be lived out and expressed in our lives. We are not just declared this by the mercy of God, but we are called to live into this by His grace that empowers us to be who we were created to be, to be who He has called us to be. So He thanks God for them. And their partnership, which was in the Gospel, and the Gospel which He doesn't hear explain is, as it were, the nature of the business, as you might say, for your partnership in tent making or your partnership in sheep farming or whatever it was. So behind this affirmation of their constant support stands Paul's conviction that God's work through what the world considers weakness will be effective. God works through what the world considers weakness. 
In fact, Paul says elsewhere that he delights in weakness. In his letter to the Corinthians, he says, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. When was the last time you said that? I said that. Someone came up to you and said that. I delight in, in, in insults and weaknesses and difficulties. If someone came up to you and said that, you would think, what are you smoking, brother? But Paul says, I delight in weaknesses and insults. Remember, for him, joy was the way of the cross. And that is the way we are called to as well. This wasn't just for Paul or for certain exceptional individuals. It's a call to all of us from Christ Jesus. Delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Watch what he says. Because that is where God is at work. I delight in them, not because he, he was some sadistic, crazy guy that was just into this kind of you know, violence towards himself. No, he delighted in them because he understood that that was where God was working. He worked through these things. And when God works through these problems, it is clear to all that His power alone has been at work. And Paul rejoiced in that. People will see that it is God alone that has been at work in and through me. It hasn't been my it hasn't been my own strength or effort or abilities at all. It's been him. And so Paul rejoiced because in working through his weaknesses all the world would see that God is the author and the finisher, the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end of it all. Perhaps because the Philippians had experienced this in their own lives, they apparently understood it well, and they were willing to support Paul as faithfully when he was enduring hardship and lacked the signs of worldly success. Think about this. If I can put it in these terms to help us understand, for the Philippians, their pastor was in prison. How's that for, boy, we sure have a successful pastor. He's in the can right now. And he ain't coming out anytime soon as far as we know. You know, all the other churches boasting about their Joel Osteen smile pastor and all the, all the glitter people and all those people with with televised programs and internet ministries and everything. And, well, our pastor, he's really saying he's in prison. But the Philippians did not wane in their support. They did not back off in their support. They apparently understood well and were willing to support Paul as faithfully when he was enduring hardship and lacked the signs of worldly success as when, from the world's perspective, all was going well. They were not fair-weather supporters and partners. They were committed through thick and thin. 
through the ebbs and flows, through the highs and lows, their commitment did not wane. The Philippians' faithfulness and Paul's commendation of them for it stand, loved ones, it stands before us as an authoritative challenge to us, to the modern church. Faithfulness to the church and its divinely called leadership should not be shaped by the spirit of the world. And how it so often is. It should not be tied to such world spirit definitions and metrics of success. Like physical facilities, numerical growth, a comfortable lifestyle, impressive credentials. This portion of Paul's letter challenges modern Christ followers like us, me and you, to look beyond what is seen and focus instead on the heart and to remain faithful to the church, to its mission, to its purpose, to its leadership, and to its global workers, even when in the world's view they look like failures. To continue showing support even when their work is not producing visible results. Even when it seems to languish or deteriorate as well. Unique to this letter of Paul's is the fact that gospel language occurs proportionately more often than any other letter of his. Interesting. So what does Paul mean by gospel in this context since the gospel clearly is bigger than him and the Philippians put together? The gospel is understood to mean the larger enterprise in which they are working together. The gospel of the kingdom. The larger enterprise. Paul means by gospel here, not simply the gospel events. The facts of Jesus' life, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, establishing Him as Messiah and Lord. He's, he's, he doesn't just mean those events, but he's speaking of the ongoing movement and project of the gospel of the kingdom. The announcement in word and deed that Jesus is indeed the Lord of the world, fulfilling the gospel prophecies in Isaiah 40 and 52, and thus upstaging the gospel pretensions of Caesar and his particular brand of good news. You see, Paul was speaking very culturally within the context that he was familiar with. Caesar had declared himself as Lord. The whole statement, Jesus is Lord. Will you say that with me? Jesus is Lord. Do you know where that where it originated? It originated out of this context in Philippians where the Philippians, all they heard all the time, and you said this if you were going to be treated uh, fairly and, and well by the governing authorities, Kaiser is Lord. Caesar is Lord. The gospel of the kingdom totally turns that around and says, no, 
We are a people as saints and citizens of the kingdom who live by Jesus, who is Lord. And think about how that was pushing back in subversive ways to the context in which Paul was living and the context in which you and I live today. Paul uses the phrase kingdom of God as a shorthand for this whole thing that we're all involved with since the word Christianity hadn't been invented yet. That word Christianity was not a word familiar to the Philippians. The kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom was. So here and elsewhere, he uses the word gospel in the same way to denote the entire project of announcing Jesus as Lord and then forming and shaping and energizing the communities of those who believe so that they would display to the wider watching world what it means in practice to live the gospel of the kingdom out loud, going public. What does it look like for us to be in public, the people of Christ, before the watching world?